Amen. As always, it's a blessing uh, to be here with you. If I've had the chance to meet you, I go by Ant. I serve as the pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. Very glad that you chose to join us this morning as we continue working through our sermon series that we're entitling Embodied. As we've been looking at uh, things regarding the human body, what, is it, what does it mean for us to understand that God created our bodies, that he created our bodies and us for his glory? And so we've hit on a variety of topics. Let me say this real quick before I get into today's um, topic. If you have a question about anything, I believe it's in uh, three weeks from today, uh, we're going to be having a Q&A session during our during our worship service. So we would love for you to submit any questions that you have regarding anything that's been said in this series, anything regarding sex or gender, or anything related to what we've been going through in this sermon series. You can submit those questions uh, by texting 2NOTCH along with your question to 855-855-0655. So if you forget that, we do have them up here on the, on the screen for you. We would love for you to text in any questions that you have so we can be uh, just as faithful as we can possibly be about um, answering the questions you have, and really equipping the saints to, to live in, in accordance with the scriptures in a world that oftentimes disagrees with the word of God regarding the matters that we're going over uh, throughout this sermon series. So again, if you have any questions, we'd love for you to text those in. Or, or maybe even during your life groups, if you're having a discussion, there's a question that comes up that maybe you're not sure how to answer, that might be a good time for you to submit that, um, that question to us as well. So today we're going to be talking about uh, a challenging topic, and that is specifically, uh, what do we do with unmet desires that we have? I want us as the people of God to have a um, a thorough understanding of uh, the way the Bible talks about and views and communicates to us about our desires and also how we are to respond to the different desires uh, that we have, and that's certainly relevant to what we've been discussing throughout this sermon series. When we look, we'll, we'll get it started in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1 today, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Reads, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, so this is in the Garden of Eden, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve said, God told us not to eat of the fruit of the tree, and if we do eat of that tree, obviously we're going to die, as we can see that Satan is coming in trying to maybe twist or question God and his word. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So the most important point here is that the devil is trying to get Eve to doubt the truth of God's word, to doubt what God has said. Um, and up to this point, he's been unsuccessful. He's asking her questions, and, and, she, and she is telling him exactly what God said. So he's been, his tactic is, has been unsuccessful up to this point, but it's important for the purpose of this sermon today and for the uh, importance of our own growth as Christians that we notice what it was that he did that actually worked what it was that he did that led her to do the thing that he was trying to get her to do. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He is tempting her with her desire for knowledge to get her to do something that God doesn't want her to do. Now, is knowledge bad? No. Is knowledge about good and evil bad in and of itself? No. But he is trying to get her to pursue that knowledge outside of the parameters that God has told her to live in. 
He is, he, is, he is seeking to prey on this desire that she has to get her to, to walk away from God and his design. He's tempting her, with, and again, with another desire in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, notice the beginning of verse 6. It's giving us insight into the sequence. When she saw that it was good for food, she desired food. And it was also a delight to her eyes. She wanted and she desired what she saw. She desired to be made wise. And when she desired good things, and when she desired these good things, the wisdom, the knowledge, then she ate. The devil attempts to deceive, and when he does so, he plays on her desires. It's not just random lies that he's telling. No, he's trying to entice her via her desires to get her to do what he wants her to do. He tempts her to pursue them, again, outside of the context that God designed for us to pursue and enjoy those things. Family, if we are going to walk in maturity as Christians and follow God in the way that God calls us to, we need to know how to deal with unmet desires. If we are going to follow Christ in the way that he calls us to, we need to know how to deal with unmet desires. The fall of mankind took place because of an ungodly pursuit of unmet desires. So with this sermon, what I want to do is help us have a sound and thorough and biblical understanding of desires and urges and even passions that we have so that we can deal with them in a way that is glorifying to God and good for us. I got two main points I want to point us to today. The first one is sin often results from disordered desires. Sin often results from disordered desires. I want to explain what I mean by disorder. Oftentimes when the enemy tempt us, tempts us, the desire, or maybe, maybe I'll say the, the deep level or root level desire that we have in and of itself oftentimes isn't a bad thing. Like with Eve, she had a desire for knowledge. She had a desire to be made wise. Those in and of themselves aren't bad things, but they become disordered when we attempt to pursue them outside of the parameters that God gives us to pursue the desires that we have. When the devil is going to try to get us to, oh, sorry, I should say, what the devil will do is try to get us to believe that it is worth it to go outside of God's design to get our desires met. He is trying to get you to believe that it is worth it to go outside of God's design to get your desires met. He wants us to believe that the satisfaction of getting that desire met is more important than practicing righteousness and holiness. I'll say that again. He wants us to believe that the satisfaction of having those desires met is more important than practicing holiness and righteousness. The enemy wants us to believe that having our desires met is more important than following Christ. He wants us to believe that having that desire met in a sinful way is better than living with an unmet desire in a righteous way. He wants us to believe that having that desire met in a sinful way is better than living with an unmet desire in a righteous way. And that's what he convinced Eve of. He convinced her that the gap between her desire and her experience was so bad that it was worth crossing God to bridge that gap. That it was worth forsaking God's love and his plan and his wisdom 
to bridge the gap between her desires and her experience. He had her convinced that her desires were more important than God's glory. And he preyed on her lack of ability or unwillingness to live with these unmet desires. And that's how he led her to sin. And Christians, what makes this so hard often, as I said a little bit earlier, is oftentimes these deep desires that we have in and of themselves are good and fine desires. Good desires that can cause us some amount of grief when we don't have those desires met. And the enemy wants to play on the weakness we feel in those times when we notice that our desires are going unmet and the the sadness that we experience. And he wants to reel us in by trying to get us to fulfill those desires in ungodly ways. Let me try to give you a hypothetical example. So let's say a spouse, let's say spouse A, they desire to be loved, they desire to be cherished, they desire to be pursued romantically, they desire to be pursued sexually, they desire to be respected, they they desire to be fully known and fully loved. All good desires that this spouse has. But they notice that in this marriage that they're in, they don't feel those things in the way that they expected to. They don't feel those things in the way that they believe that they should. So they're living with unmet desires in their marriage. For whatever reason, they don't feel loved and cherished and respected and appreciated, et cetera, et cetera, the way that they desire to, which is very common for many married people. It's a very difficult position for someone to be in. There are many married people today that find themselves in that difficult place. They find themselves in that place of disappointment and sadness because of unmet desires. Now, often what happens is someone outside of the marriage begins to show that kind of love, that kind of pursuit, that kind of respect, that kind of appreciation to someone who is married, who is is having those desires unmet in their marriage. And if that married person hasn't learned to live with and tolerate unmet desires and still be able to find contentment in their life, if they're a Christian contentment in God, if they haven't learned to find those things while they experience unmet desires, they are now susceptible to betraying the trust of someone that they love dearly because of an inability to live with and accept and still find contentment in life in the space where they have unmet desires. Married people, if I can encourage you with this today, chances are you have some significant unmet desires in your marriage. Chances are there are a number of things in your marriage that make you feel sadness or disappointment. But that little text message or DM that you're considering sending to that person that's showing you your attention, that's showing you some amount of attention, will lead you to have even more unmet desires and greater unmet desires. Do you hear what I'm saying? That there are things, there are unmet desires that you are experiencing right now, but, 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 but one bad decision, one mistake, one step in the wrong direction will, will lead you to, to a myriad of other unmet desires. For example, you might have the unmet desire of wishing you could bring healing into your marriage. You might have the unmet desire of wishing that your spouse was not as hurt as they are. You might have the unmet desire of wishing you were able to go back in time and make a different decision, and those desires will go unmet, at least for a period of time, for most of those desires. Because because this spouse has let the enemy deceive them into thinking that the satisfaction of getting that desire met in the moment is more important than practicing holiness and righteousness. 
because they let the enemy deceive them into thinking that having our desires met in the moment is more important than following Christ. Because they let the enemy deceive them into thinking that having that desire met in a sinful way is better than living with that unmet desire in a righteous way. Let me give another hypothetical example. There's a brother or sister who is a Christian and is single. They strongly desire to be married, which is a good desire. They have a strong understanding of how God designed sex, and they desire that for their lives. They want to enjoy that with someone else till death do them part. Maybe they've been single for longer than anticipated. So now they're grieving the fact that they're not married now, while also grieving the fact that they don't know when or if they will be married. They are living with unmet desires. Unmet desires for many things. Maybe unmet desires for the financial benefits of marriage. Maybe like like having someone to help you with things like maybe home ownership. Unmet desires of being romantically pursued. Unmet desires of of having sex. Unmet desires of being physically intimate with someone in non-sexual ways. Unmet desires for many good and reasonable desires that many of us have. Living with and dealing with unmet desires. And then someone comes along that is showing interest that for maybe a number of reasons isn't God's will for this brother or this sister's life. They aren't helping them follow Christ. They aren't helping them turn away from sin. In fact, they're probably more of a hindrance to them following Christ than anything else. They're probably helping lead them towards sin more than anything else. So now if this Christian is single and they haven't learned how to live with unmet desires for the glory of God, if they haven't learned how how to have contentment in the Lord, while wrestling through and still grieving legitimate, deep-level, sometimes soul-level unmet desires, now they are susceptible to the temptation of forsaking God for the sake of satisfaction of unmet desires. To my Christians in the room that are single, if you have been entertaining the idea of getting into a romantic relationship with someone that you know that God does not have for you to be in a romantic relationship with, you need to cut that off. You need to cut that off. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that these little steps that you are taking aren't leading you somewhere. No matter what it is, if it is outside of the will of God, we must remember that it is never Worth it. The enemy is trying to play on your unmet desires the same way he did with Eve in the garden. He's preying on your unmet desires and using it to get you to pursue those desires in a disordered way. I know it could be easy for me to say that as a man that's been married for almost 13 years now. I know I haven't experienced what many of our single brothers and sisters have, so I can't speak experientially about your specific unmet desires, but I want to keep in mind that God is and always has been aware of your situation and your desires. And here's what the Bible says uh, about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The one who lived an embodied experience on this earth, who came down from heaven as a single man, is able to sympathize with you and has been tempted in it, as you are in every respect, the Bible says. And he is the one that calls, that calls us to flee from sexual immorality, which is any form of sex outside of the context of marriage. Here's what he says, in, or the Apostle Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
verse 18. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. That word, that's, that's a word that means to run away from something as if, as if running towards safety or running away from something that is dangerous. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So whether you're single or married, the call from the Bible is to run away from whatever would lead us into sexual sin. The devil, the snake that was in the garden, wants you to let your unmet desires keep you from fleeing from sexual sin. I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. The call from the Bible is to flee from it. And one of the primary things that the enemy will use to keep you from doing that is preying on unmet desires that you have. And because of that, for Christians in the room, and all of us are in some way living with unmet desires, so long as those desires go on unmet, hear me on this, you need to be on high alert for Satan to come in and try to make you think that you should get those desires met in ungodly ways. Any significant unmet desire that you have in your life, you need to know that the enemy sees that as a potential open door for him to come into your life and lead you away from God. We see that's what he did with Eve in the garden. We see he tried to tempt Jesus in a similar way in the desert. That he likes to use the, the unmet desires, the unmet desires that we grieve, that cause us sadness, that sometimes cause us to feel weak. He wants to use those. One of the things that would benefit you, an exercise that would benefit you most likely as a Christian, is to just take some time and think through, what significant unmet desires do I have? What significant unmet desires that I do, do I have? And how might the enemy try to use those to deceive me, to get me to follow him instead of following God? For each one of them, however many strong unmet desires that you notice in your life, itemize them out. I'm talking about write them down, list them out, and then ask yourself and potentially write this out as well. How might the enemy try to use it as a doorway? Has he, he's probably already started trying to tempt you in those areas as it is. What lies is he feeding me that might cause me to turn away from God and value satisfaction regarding these unmet desires more than I value the glory of God and following him? How has he already tried to leverage your unmet desires to make you sin against God or to make, or maybe another way to say this, or to make sin seem more appealing than God? How has he tried to leverage your unmet desires to make sin seem more appealing than God? This is what he did with Eve. He used that unmet desire that she had to make sin seem more appealing and attractive than God and his plan for her. And that's why it's so important that we're aware of this second point that I want to bring up. Now it's point one. Here's point number two. Your desires are not God. Your desires are not God. Your desires are not God. Adam and Eve in the garden elevated their desires over God. And that caused the fall of mankind. The desire for satisfaction and instant gratification to fulfill those desires in that moment became greater to them than their desire to follow God. On the surface, it may have looked like they just made a simple decision. They chose to eat from the fruit of the tree, but actually what happened was there was a shift that took place. Whereas they had been following God and listened to him prior to that, but then they decide, actually, my desire and this thing that I want, that is a delight to the eyes, that is desired to make one wise now, I value that above God and his will for my life. That's what took place. 
It wasn't just a mistake. It wasn't just a bad decision. It was a disordering of values where the desire to follow God became subservient to the other desires that they had. Family, I think we've become so desensitized to sin that we don't even see sin that way anymore. But make no mistake, we live in a society today where we have deified our desires. We have deified. We've made our desires into God. We've made them ultimate. We've made them the primary thing that determines how we live. If it feels good, then that's what we do. We worship our desires. We make our desires ultimate in our lives. So much so that oftentimes we low-key, maybe high-key, think God would be wronging us to cause us to live a life with unmet desires. That's deifying our desires. That's, that's putting our desires in God's place. I can't imagine why God would cause me to live a life where I don't have this desire met. What does that communicate? What is that saying about what we truly believe? It's saying that we truly believe that the ultimate thing, the greatest thing in life actually isn't God. It's actually if I can have as many of my desires met as I possibly can. We point to other people. We point to other people and how their desires are met as a means of justifying our beliefs that God is wronging us for not meeting our desires. This is a sign of you have elevated your desires above God. If you believe that because God gave this person this thing that you desire, then maybe you start to believe, or maybe you're jealous of them. Maybe, maybe you're now angry with them. Maybe now you're angry with God because God gave these things to this person. God didn't give these things to you. Maybe you now don't trust God in the way that you used to, or you're finding it difficult to trust God because you're seeing somebody else has this thing. So why wouldn't God give that to you? We have to be careful. It is easy for us to deify our own desires, and put them above God. Now, let me say this. I'm not trying to minimize how difficult it is to live with certain unmet desires. I know it's often extremely difficult and often painful and a grievous thing in many instances, but as Christians, we need to remain steadfast in the truth that having unmet desires doesn't mean, or, or, or I should say, feeling those things, feeling that grief and that disappointment because of our unmet desires doesn't mean that God does not love us. Feeling the pain and the difficulty and the grief from those unmet desires doesn't mean that God isn't still here for us. It doesn't mean that God has forsaken us. It doesn't mean that God's not hearing our prayers. It doesn't make any statement whatsoever about God that we don't have all of our desires met in the way that we want them to. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's painful. I'm not trying to minimize that. And what I'm trying to do is prevent us from allowing unmet desires to change our theology about God to change the way that we view God, to change who we know him to be, to change our faith in God and cause us to doubt that he is everything that he says that he is. As the devil was playing on Eve's unmet desires, notice he was talking to her like God didn't have her best interests in mind, like God didn't really deeply love her and want good for her. He's essentially telling her, oh, no, God's not going to give you that because he doesn't want you to have knowledge that he has. He's telling her how to interpret the fact that she still has this unmet desire. He's telling her how she should view God in light of the fact that God is keeping her from having this thing that she now wants. That's his play. That's his strategy. That's what worked. 
After this happens, then she turns towards sin. She begins to doubt the reality of who God is as Satan is tempting her. Again, he's not just throwing random lies at her. He's trying to get her to question God and his goodness and his faithfulness and the fact that he is still for her and make her think God is just withholding the good things from her. That God doesn't have her best interest at heart. Adam and Eve, they should have been able to look back real quick at God's kindness to them. He'd given them this great garden in what we know now to be one of the most fertile places on earth for a garden to grow. He had given them purpose and meaning and the ability and opportunity to be a part of the genesis of something that was far greater and much bigger than themselves. They should have looked back on that and said, no, I know God loves me. I know he has my best interests at heart. Even if I don't understand it, I trust him because he has shown me how good he is. They should have said, in fact, I know God. Who are you? I don't know who you are. You have not shown me any good or that you desire good for me. And yet they listened to the one who had not proven any goodness to them whatsoever instead of continuing to trust in God. And when we are tempted to believe that maybe God doesn't love us the way he says he does, or maybe he has forsaken us because of the unmet desires that we have, we too need to look back at God's goodness real quick and remind ourselves that God created us for the purpose of experiencing his love and his good creation that he made, that we need to remind ourselves that he came from heaven in the form of a man to rescue us and reconcile us, not because of anything he did, but because of the sins that we had committed against him. We need to remind ourselves that he dwelt among us and allowed himself to experience pain and sorrow and unmet desires, his own self, so that he could show us the way and show us how to truly live the way that we have been designed to live. We need to remind ourselves that he was beaten and tortured and crucified to save us. When he could have chosen to save himself, he's instead he allowed himself to endure that so that he could save us. And he carried our sin and our guilt on himself so that when he died, we could be justified and declared righteous by God. And he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father with all power and authority in his hands. And he's going to use that power when he returns to end, to rid us of all death and all suffering and all pain and all grief and all sadness and all sorrow. He's going to wipe away all of our tears. That's who God is. That's who God is. Listen, we don't, I say this a lot. We don't let what we've gone through tell us who God is. We let what God went through tell us who God is. We, we don't let the pain and the difficulty from the unmet desires tell us who God is. But think about the fact that Jesus allowed himself, this is God in the flesh, the creator of all, allowed himself to live an embodied existence where he, even though he was in control over everything, experienced unmet desires himself. Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to God the Father, if, if, if there is a way, take this away from me. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to deal with that. But he said, not my will, but your will be done. He allowed himself to experience. This is a baffling thing in my mind. Why would God ever have an unmet desire? But he allowed himself into, to, to come into our experience, to be able to sympathize with us, that he might understand the temptation that we go through and lead us out of it if we would trust and believe in him. Family, the God who was done all of that. He loves you. He has your good in mind. Whether you understand it or not, he has your good in mind. He knows more than you know. 
He sees from a perspective that you can't see from. He has understanding that you can't possibly imagine. You can trust him that he loves you. He has not forsaken you. He has your good in mind. No matter what desires he allows or sometimes causes to go unmet in your life. He loves and cares about you deeply. He has not left you. And when you do have those unmet desires, remind yourself that he is better than any satisfaction that you get from having your desires met. He is God and your desires are not. I think another thing that shows us that we tend to elevate our desires to God's status is when we let our desires define us and give us our core identity. We live in a time where we often let our desires define us and give us our core identity. As Christians and those who worship Christ, we know that we find our identity in Christ. That's what we know from God's word. Multiple scriptures point us to that. But in a time when our society worships our desires, especially sexual desire, we tend to often find our identity in our desires. This is why this is one of the reasons people push back as hard as they do and get angry about and, and, and accuse Christians and accuse the Bible and accuse God's word when it comes to God's restrictions regarding sex. It's because we find our, oftentimes it's because we find our identity in our desires. So this is why we say things like, I just don't believe God would want me to be something that I'm not. I just don't believe a loving God would want me to be something that I am not. I just don't believe that that is true. I just don't believe that that is the case. So let me try to say this very honestly and as lovingly and as humbly as I, as I know how. Please don't take this as a shot towards anybody. It's intended to be a correction, not a shot. When someone says something like, I'm gay, that's who I am, God wouldn't tell me to be, God wouldn't tell me not to be who he made me to be. Or God wouldn't tell me to be something that is different from who he made me to be. This is who I am. God wouldn't tell me to not be who I am. They have united their sexual desires with their core identity. They've, they've paired together their sexual desires and preferences with their core identity. So much so that they believe that if they aren't able to freely act on those desires, they are being told to not be who they truly are. We live in a time where people believe that choosing to live with an unmet desire is the same as choosing to not be themselves. Because we worship our desires and we were created to find our identity from who we worship, which is God. So if we worship our desires, we will find our identity in our desires. Our desires will tell us who we are. And anybody who tells us that we should, that we should submit to Christ and thus not pursue those specific unmet desires is now against us because we have united our desires with our identity and the core of who we are. And when we do that, we villainize God and we elevate our desires over him. And this will cause us to see God as someone who doesn't want us to be ourselves when as Christians, we know from God's word that that is far from the truth. Let me explain. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's saying if you're in Christ, you have a new, you are a new creation. You have a new identity now. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 tells us a little bit about that identity. This is the Apostle Paul talking about himself after being changed by Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
He's saying because of his union with Christ and because of Christ died and was crucified in some way, in some mysterious way, we also, our old life was crucified as well. And I am now a new person. So he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So now as a Christian, our perspective on ourselves is the old me has died. The new me is a me that submits to Christ where my, where my truest and deepest and strongest desires are to, or I should say our realest desires, the desires that are more true to the core of who we are now, are the desires that we have to follow Christ. He says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian view on our identity is that because of the death and resurrection of Christ, all who are in Christ have a new identity now. And who we are at our core is someone whose old self is dead and our new self, our most authentic and true new self, is someone who lives for Christ. As the Apostle Paul puts it, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we can tend to believe that us being our truest self is us popping off at the mouth and us saying whatever we have to say and us following whatever urges and desires that we have. But if you truly believe God, you know that's not who you are anymore. If you truly have faith in God, then, then you would say me being my true self is me putting that away because I've died to those things because those things have been crucified with Christ. And the true me is now the me that says I submit to the Savior. That's who I truly am now. And a lot of the, the difficulty that we run to and a lot of reasons why we turn to sin is because we actually don't believe God when he tells us he made us new. Because we actually don't believe that we, that we are different now, that the true us is the us that desires to follow God, that the true us is the us that submits to the spirit of God when he is leading us away from sin and leading us to follow God. We have an identity issue. And some of it is because we worship our desires. Because on some level we believe that our desires are God. But I want to help us see from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, one of the ways that we should actually view our desires. 1 Peter 2, 11 reads like this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. That word passion, y'all forgive me if I, if I pronounce this wrong, is epithemia. It's a word that means longing or desire. For something. In this verse, Peter's warning us to abstain and stay away from the desires and longings of our sinful nature. That's what he means by the word flesh there, of our sinful nature, which wage war against our souls. When I think about the Garden of Eden and how the devil came at Eve, he actually used her unmet desires to wage war against her. He used her unmet desires to wage war against her. He actually appeased her and enticed her with something that would kill her. He enticed her with something that would kill her. And when he does that, he often, when, when, he is, when he is waging war against us, he often doesn't come with a sword, so to speak. He comes with satisfaction. Do you understand what I'm saying? He often doesn't come with a sword. He comes with satisfaction. That's, that's how he wages war against us oftentimes. Often when the enemy is attacking you, he's not coming with what looks like war. He's coming with something that looks like well-being. He's not coming with the appearance of a fight. He's coming with the appearance of fulfillment. All, and in all these instances, he's actually waging war against our souls, but he's doing it in a way where we accept it and embrace it and won't fight against him because it seems appealing to us. It seems satisfying to us. It seems fulfilling to us. 
But Peter is warning us that these sinful desires are actually waging war against our souls. They are leading us away from the only one who can truly satisfy the deepest desires that we have, and that is Christ himself. I was reading Psalm 16 this morning, and I felt it was just an excellent summation for today's sermon. Psalm 16, verse 4 says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. And those who elevate something over God will increase their sorrows. That includes elevating our desires over God. Verse 5 says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. That term portion means something that is enough for you. It is, some, it is what you are satisfied with. Like this is enough for me to be satisfied. He's saying the Lord is my chosen portion. He doesn't just say portion, excuse me. He says chosen portion. That he chooses God over everything else because God is enough. But not only does he say that God is enough, look at what else he says at the end of verse 5. He says, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lot that he's referring to refers to the estate that they have. This is the land where they live. He's saying that God holds his lot, that the lines, he's talking about the lines, the boundaries, the restrictions of his lot, of what God has has given them, metaphorically saying that the way you have chosen to put the the restrictions around my life, the, the life that you have called me to, he's saying those lines have fallen in pleasant places. He's saying those lines, those boundaries, those restrictions, what you allow me to live in, that is good. It's pleasant. It is right. It is good. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's expressing a level of commit, of contentment, I should say, in the life that God calls him to. That I'm able to be content here, that this lot is pleasant. It is good. You have put the lines or the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. He's saying to God, you and the lot that you gave me, even with his restrictions and boundaries and limitations, it is enough for me. This is the prayer of someone who surely has had unmet desires. We all have them. And he's saying that to us, that because of my God, what, what I have is enough. What I have is enough. Family, given our culture today and how much sex and romance is idolized and it's in so many of the songs, it's in the commercials, it seems to be everywhere that we go. It's always in front of us. I believe that our brothers and sisters who, in a pursuit of following Christ, are at this point in their lives committed to a life of celibacy as a means of following Christ are an incredible example of what this verse is talking about in Psalm chapter 16 of what we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what we talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2. An incredible, in, in, in a world where our desires are so idolized to the point where it's, it's, it's common, we don't even notice it half the time, I believe, when it's happening. But to my brothers and sisters who are saying, I am going to, in pursuit of Christ, whether that's because, because our brothers and sisters who are single at this point, or we have brothers and sisters as well who just simply aren't attracted to members of the opposite sex, and they, they have in themselves desires for romance and sexual attraction to those of the same sex as them, but they're saying, I'm going to sacrifice those desires because I'm going to follow God no matter what my culture tells me, no matter what my friends say, no matter what my desires say. My desires are not God. My God is God, and I'm going to follow him. I just want to say you are an incredible example. An incredible example of faithfulness, of maturity in Christ. 
to say, I will forsake what this world is telling me is the best thing because I know what the best thing really is. And he came and he has saved me and he has shown me the way and I follow him. If that's you, if what I said just describes, just if it describes you, I want to just encourage you to keep believing God. I want to encourage you to keep fighting the good fight, to keep fleeing from sexual immorality, to keep showing us and the world that God really is your chosen portion and your cup and that he has caused the lines of your life to fall in pleasant places. Family, y'all pray with me today.